0: Dear Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, so much that we don't need to forfeit peace. But we can, when carrying burdens, we can take them to you in prayer. And the passage before us indicates that when we're thankful and pray to you and make our requests known, you give us peace. Not just peace, peace like the world does, but peace that guards the heart and the mind. Peace that the world can neither give nor explain. A peace that even draws the attention of people and causes them to ask, why are you at peace? And you tell us to be ready always to give an answer for that. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us today to receive this word and then with urgency, put it into practice in our lives. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, I'm going to read from verse 6, but let me just make a couple of minutes of preacher talk for you because I want you to know like this part of it. Um, I believe that verses 6 through 9 fit into the context of even what we talked about last week, And it fits into the context of the entire first part of chapter 4. That's important to know, because what's going on in chapter 4, starting in verse 2, is Paul is addressing something that is a difficulty and a problem in the Philippian church. In the Philippian church, if you understand, read this whole letter through, doesn't look like it's a church that has many problems going on. But like, but like every church, it's got its challenging aspects to it. And as we talked about last week, Euodia and Syntyche were two women who were faithful and they were uh, part of the preaching of the gospel and they were uh, companions and co-laborers with the Apostle Paul when he was there. But they did not see eye to eye about something. And Paul wrote this part of this chapter to try to get the differences, to try to get the discord among them settled. And he even called upon the church to help them do so. And then, after he does that, uh, in verse 4, he launches into a series of admonishments that I believe carry all the way through verse 9. And these admonishments... Include what we talked about last week and include what we're going to talk about today. And verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That is a timely admonishment because one of the things that discord among people in a church can stir up is a... Not stir up, but rather stifle is the joy of the people in the church. So he's telling them, settle this discord and get back to what you're supposed to be doing, which is rejoicing in the Lord. Then he says in verse 5, Let your gentleness be known to all. The Lord is at hand. And we talked about how the, the, the aspect of gentleness there had to do with their thoughtfulness and their consideration towards one another. And it wasn't just to fix that, but also it was let your gentleness what be known to all. That is, he was speaking of the testimony of Christians to the outside world. People ought to be able to look at a fellowship of Christians and see that they love one another, see that they're unified with one another. You think of Ephesians chapter 4 that tells us to endeavor, to work, to strive, to keep the unity of the Spirit. Work to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so one of the things that discord can do is it can stir up a... Uh, uh, a sense of strife among people that will become visible to those on the outside. And now our thoughtfulness towards one another, instead of being something that promotes the goodness and the love and the glory of God and the love among brethren, it becomes something that people from the outside can look at us and say, see, that's why I don't go there. See, that's why I don't, you know. And and that's why this admonishment is given. Let your gentleness be known to all. Not, 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 not that you're a church full of people that bicker and argue with each other all the time. Let your, gent- let your consideration for one another be known to all. Then he gets to verse 6, which is where we are today. And I think in verse 6, he's continuing in that vein all the way through to verse 10. And if you notice, verse 10 starts with the word but. And but implies a contrast. And when he says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last. So what he's doing is, in verse 10 is he's contrasting now. He's moving on from dealing with this issue of the discord in the church that was there and then moving on to something else that he was rejoicing in. When I see the word but in verse 10, that's what kind of, in a, from a textual standpoint, shows me that Uh, verse 2 all the way through verse 9 should be considered as a unit. That was a struggle because obviously verse 8 begins with the word finally, which might make it seem like he's changing the subject, but I don't think it does. I think the word finally there is used because it's like the last thing on this list of things that he's been listing in verses 4 through 9. That's kind of your preachery, technical, exegetical, expository pick a bunch of words that you only hear from preachers in church and, and, and sort of background. But I think it does properly contextualize the passage because what verse 6 says is this, be anxious for nothing. Look at it. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, These do, and the God of peace will be with you. It's great, isn't it? Just culminates that whole passage. This ish, this this wonderful, wonderful promise that is made in verse 6 happens, I believe, in context as part of a discussion about settling the differences and the discord in the church. Because one of the things that discord among, especially in this church, among significant, meaningful, godly, active Christians, Euodia and Syntyche, the discord in them, and this is a reason to guard against discord among believers, that discord can spread and it can cause people to become, to use the word here, anxious. We use the word anxious most commonly to describe like, something that we're waiting for to happen, and it's usually used in a positive sense. But the idea of anxious here has to do, it's a form of the word anxiety. And that's what happens. A lack of love, a lack of humility, a lack of consideration for one another, the acceptance of discord and fighting, whatever may be at the root of it, among believers in the church can stir up anxiety among believers. Even believers that aren't necessarily directly involved with Euodia and Syntiches conflict, anxiety can be stirred up. Now, when he says, be anxious for nothing, the thing I want to point out to you is, he is speaking to the church But this admonishment takes the form of something very personal. What he ends up saying here is something that is axiomatic. It has its relevance to the problem in the Philippian church at hand. But the beauty of it is that 2,000 years later, we read it, And it is universally true in the life of every Christian. God, as you would expect by now God to do, God used a problem in a church to bring forth a great truth for all Christians 2,000 years later even. Hear what I said? And that happens in the Bible a lot. You read 1 Corinthians, lots of problems. You read some of the other letters, lots of different... You read Galatians, doctrinal... but, But God used some of the early difficulties experienced by the first century church to become the topics around which the letters of the New Testament are framed so that down through the ages, even including us 20 centuries later, we can still read and be blessed and be encouraged and be admonished and learn. That is God's love for you. That this great blessing, this great blessing that this verse is, would be passed down to us. Be anxious for nothing. Have anxiety about nothing. I'll point out that there have been times, not frequently, but there have been times in the past where I've heard preachers say that this is a command which, technically speaking, is very true. But sometimes it goes too far. And we will say that if you have anxiety, it's because you're not trusting the Lord enough and you're sinning. And I have to say that I think one of the worst things that you can say to a person who battles with, Anxiety is, you're sinning. May I submit to you that these are gracious words. These are words of a great promise that are given here. The reason we're told not to be anxious for anything, but instead pray and be thankful and find God's peace, is because we are inclined to be anxious discord among you, Odea and Syntyche, or whatever the cause may be. We as humans are naturally inclined to struggle and battle with anxiety over virtually any sort of reason varying from person to person. This is not a rebuke, this verse. This is a promise. This is a spiritual remedy that is being offered to those who love God and trust God and believe in God. And it is very powerful. Before I even get to verse 8, and who knows, maybe I won't even get to verse 8 today, as is the pattern here. Um, what? Where does this statement go? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And what? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The target the objective, the, the final destination of this verse is to arrive at peace. Peace in your soul, peace in your mind, peace in your heart, peace and rest in your spirit. God cares for you, and God cares that your spirit is at peace. In your life God cares that your mind is at rest in your life there are many things that people can do to say to each other to try to help each other there are many things that people can do to harm each other and say to harm one another we have to be very careful to guard against that right The best remedy for the Euodia and Syntyche problem is to avoid it altogether. Right? But there is nothing like going boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and help in time of need. We are told here by God, not just out of hand, don't be anxious for anything, We are told, don't be anxious for anything, but instead do this. Grab your suitcase full of your burdens, walk into my throne room, drop them down, worship and express your thanksgiving, and then turn around and leave. I've got this. Praise the Lord, Lord, indeed. Can we back up just for a minute? Shake your head, yes. So 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 we can see kind of one of the places where this thought process starts. We're gonna come back and, and and break down this verse the way that we always do, but just to give you some some foundation, let's go back and look at something that Jesus said in John chapter fourteen. Turn to John chapter fourteen and verse twenty two. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our home with him. Note the we. We will come and make our home with him. What is he, what is he talking about? What is he talking about when he says, We will come and make our home with him. We'll live on. Read on. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Very similar to be anxious for nothing. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. And he goes on that way. But the key characteristic to that that I found foundational to what Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 4.6 is that Jesus said, I'm going to leave. You believe me? You trust in me? We will come and we will make our home in you. But I need to leave. But we'll come and make our home in you. And when he speaks about that, he speaks about the Holy Spirit coming to live in people, which at the time Jesus said this was a fairly new concept to all of them. right? He said kind of back in verse uh, 15, he said, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper that He may abide with you. Right? And he's speaking of the Holy Spirit who would come to them. And he says that One of the results of having His presence via the Holy Spirit in you was that He would leave us with peace. Now, what really jumps out is when He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. You see, peace in the world, earthly peace, Is very different than the peace that God is talking about. What is this peace that the Lord is talking about? I'm going to speak about it in a minute as we look up some other verses, but when Jesus contrasts the world's peace with the peace that He gives, He is talking about a peace that is sought after, a peace that is chased after, a peace that is fought for, a peace that even circumstances can be lied and manipulated and all kind of shaped and set up so we can try to find some sense of peace in this life. That's the peace that the world gives. The peace that the world gives is a peace that depends on you. The peace that the world gives is a peace that depends on your circumstances being just so and so. The peace that Jesus gives is a peace that depends on Him. It's a peace that exists in the lives of Christians, guarding the heart and the mind, irrespective of of life's circumstances you see the difference? The peace that the world gives Jesus said, I'm not giving you peace like that. I'm not giving you peace that's like, I mean you know it's the basic definition of peace from the world's perspective well the lack of conflict right? Peace in the world depends entirely on your circumstances being this or that or this or that. And as if you've lived your life long enough, you've probably come to realize you can't control all of your circumstances. You live in this giant world. And this giant world has all sorts of things going on at the same time that very often conflict with what you, deep inside your heart, wish would be. And you can't control all of that. And you can try to isolate yourself and just turn away from it all. You can try to manipulate people or cheat or fight back or or, or or lash out at people to try to make things change. You can try, with honest means, to just do everything right. And what you still find is that your peace depends on your circumstances. That's the peace that the world gives. It's a peace that is dependent upon humans. Jesus says, I'm going to go for you who believe in me. We are going to come and make our abode with you. A reference to the Trinity. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And the person of the Holy Spirit would come and dwell with you. And I'm going to leave you with my peace. My peace. I'm going to give you a peace that this world can't. It's a peace that depends on God. And it's a peace that's irrespective of circumstance. Because he says, after he says it, he says, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Immediately he says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The peace that the world offers depends upon you being troubled and being afraid that you might react to all of that and try to like fix everything. And usually when you do that, you end up messing everything up even more and then you have less peace. Jesus' peace doesn't depend on us doing anything except trusting Him. Jesus' peace that He offers depends on us, depends on us coming to Him, believing Him, crying out to Him, leaning on Him. Jesus' peace is entirely dependent upon Him fulfilling His promise in all of His sovereign. Now, with that in mind, turn back to Philippians chapter 4 and watch this. Oh. That's nice of you, thank you. I, it's warm up here. <laughs> and and I, I, I actually have a, a towel, but, <laughs> but, I, but I was ashamed to take it out and use it. But then Tony brought me one of these. So there you go. Thank you, brother. That's good. Praise the Lord. <laughs> all right. Now, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, look at, look at this, which surpasses all understanding. Will guide your heart guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So the peace that He's talking about here is that same peace that Jesus is talking about. It's a peace that the world doesn't get. Just like Jesus said, I leave you my peace, not as the world gives, I give to you. Here Paul says the same thing. You come, you pray, you give thanks, and the and God will give you peace that will guard the heart and mind, and the world cannot explain this. It surpasses all understanding. The idea of surpassing all understanding is the world has no means for replicating it or producing it. It is a peace that that comes from within you. It is a peace that comes from the fact that God dwells within you. It is not a peace that depends on fixing all of your circumstances. And in fact, in fact, I would say that the real glory of this peace is that it shines most brightly and most glorious in contrast with circumstances that are all messed up. We're fixers. We want to fix everything and we want everything to be right. We want everything to be plea and some of us are better at it than others. But we will do whatever, say whatever, manipulate and try to facilitate and orchestrate Whatever to have things exactly as we want them to be, no matter what the cost is, no matter matter what the effect is on everyone else. Hello, you Odia and Syntyche. Gotta have it their way, because if you don't have it your way, then you have no peace. That's seeking the peace that the world gives. The peace that God gives is irrespective of those circumstances, and the peace that God gives is one that comes from within because He is in there. It's being at peace in the way the world can't explain. Do you know how that peace comes about? And and I'm going to get to the first part of the verse in a minute here, but you have to understand, this is the objective of this verse. Trade your anxiety for God's peace. That's what this verse is about. Take your anxiety to the Lord and leave it there. And receive his peace. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 16. You know, you have at the end of 1 Thessalonians all these quick little admonishments, but then there's there's something that's very powerful in here that relates very much to what it is that we're talking about here today. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always. Kind of sounds like Philippians, right? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. I mean, just those three statements are very much like Philippians 4.6. There's the element of thanksgiving, There's the element of praying. There's the element of rejoicing. Rejoice, Philippians 4. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things and hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now you notice there two sets of instructions. One of them is a set of instructions pertaining to what you ought to do. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. And then there's a set of instructions about what you ought not to do. Don't quench the Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us The Holy Spirit works in us when we are carnal, when we are fleshly, when we are walking in and of this world and according to this world's ways and this world's methods, it quenches the work of the Spirit. Listen, I know that God is sovereign, but the reason that the Lord tells us here not to quench the Spirit is because it's possible for us in our carnality to quench the Spirit. They're not useless words. They're words that are written to Admonish us to not do something. Don't quench the spirit by your actions. Don't quench the spirit by your own carnal spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. What are prophecies? Sayings of the Lord. When people have something to say, and I don't think this is a reference to like you know, people purporting to say like, you know, miraculous things necessarily or, or, or things, I, I've been in churches before where people will stand up and they'll say prophetic statements and, and they'll even point people out in the congregation and say you this and you that and they'll say things that sometimes don't even make sense to the people. That are. It's not talking about that right? those That sort of confusion should be despised because God's not the author of it, right? However, when it says don't despise prophecies, what it's talking about is when someone has something to say, That's from the Word. Someone has something to say that's from the Lord that speaks into your situation, speaks into your life. Maybe it's even just a word of praise. Maybe it's even a word about something they themselves are struggling with. Don't despise when people speak on behalf of God. Right? Don't quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Test everything. Test those words that people say. Be like the Bereans and search the Scriptures and see if those things are accurate, right? Test all things. Abstain from every form of evil, right? So you have a set of instructions on what to do. You have a set of instructions on what to avoid. What does it all culminate with? Verse 23. Now, and it's like a prayer request. It's like a prayer, a benediction of sorts. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. Notice that it does not say, Now you need to sanctify yourself completely. That concept itself is not something to be despised. The Bible does, in places, tell us to sanctify ourselves. The Apostle Paul told us to cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Uh, in Colossians, we're told to put off the old man with all his former conduct and all of his lusts. So there is a place to that. But what he's saying here is, now may the God of peace, that title God of peace is used in the New Testament a few times. It's used in Hebrews. It's used in Romans a couple of times. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. Completely? What? Completely meaning your mind, your heart, your spirit, The inner man, may God completely sanctify you and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 24. Remember what we said? Jesus says, I give you peace, not as the world gives. The apostle Paul says, you receive peace that passes all understanding. Look at this. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. And the word it is like you see in the New King James. It's italicized. You kind of read this without the word it there. I love it. It just reads, he who calls you is faithful who also will do. Yeah, that's powerful, isn't it? It's like Paul tells you what? Rejoice. Pray. Pray. Be thankful. And what's the result of all of that? Paul says, I pray that the God of peace completely sanctifies you, mind, body, and soul, sanctifies you completely, and He, the one who calls you, He is the one who Himself will do it. Herein is a picture of the peace which passes all understanding. Herein is a picture of of the peace that Jesus gives, not as the world gives. The world's peace, as we have said repeatedly already, requires you to manipulate and do and fix and strive day after day after day, which you found probably gets you nowhere and even hurts other people along the way. The peace of God the sanctification of God, the sanctification of the mind and the soul and the spirit and the body from God is something that He does. When we, what? Trust Him, rejoice, pray, and be thankful. And that's what it says in Philippians 4, six. Go back to Philippians 4, six. Now, now we know what we're talking about. And we go to Philippians 4 6. And now what do we see there? Mm, with all that in mind. Now we know that now after studying it today, we're reminded that Jesus promised peace that was nothing like what the world could give. Now we know that the apostle Paul cried out that God would completely sanctify them in mind, body, and spirit. And that He, the one who calls us, would do it. We know that Jesus said He promised that they, they, the Trinity, would come and dwell within us, make make their home within us. And the plural pronouns are the ones that Jesus Himself used. when He said, we, not I, but we. Now knowing that, now read verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. Don't hold on to your anxiety. Don't hold on to the things that you worry about. Stop. Stop striving and stressing and groaning. Stop clawing and scratching and running from person to person, trying to manipulate and control situation after situation. You can't. Stop. Stop holding on to your anxiety. Be anxious for nothing. But. Oh, I love the word but there. Because that word but implies heres he's, he's not leaving you hanging. He doesn't just say, hey, everybody, be anxious for nothing. God bless you. That would be fine if he said that. But but it sort of would leave you hanging. Because you're like, well, what the hell? What do you mean? Don't be anxious for anything. I can't control everything that happens in my life. Stuff happens and I feel, what? But. Be anxious for nothing. Instead, but, do this. In everything, stop and think about that word for a minute. Think about, I want you right now, not to dwell on, but just to quickly think about something that you think causes anxiety in your life. Maybe a situation. Maybe another person. Think about something that causes anxiety. Now, ready? Does that thing that you're thinking about fall under the umbrella of everything? Shake your head yes. Okay? Right? Get it? This is God. This is God loving you. Everything. Everything that might cause you to be anxious. Everything. Everything. That? Yes, that. In everything... Now, I, here, here, here comes where it really gets juicy. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, three very important words to understand: prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. I won't try to pronounce the Greek words because I'm, I neither speak Greek nor I'm a scholar of Greek. But I'm really good at going on my smartphone and going to Bible Hub and looking these things up, right? It's a great resource. So in any case, the word prayer is a Greek word that uh, the word that it's translated from, it, it brings forth the element of worshiping God in prayer. We have to remember what a powerful thing worship is. And by worship, I don't just mean coming to church and singing songs, but I do mean coming to church and singing songs. But I, but I don't just mean that. Worship is living your life day by day with the perpetual recognition of the presence of God and every experience that you go through, recognizing His hand and His place in it and stopping and bowing before Him and remembering Him and giving Him praise and giving Him thanks. That's the word that's translated prayer here. It's not just asking God for things. That's the next word, supplication. But the word prayer here has the idea of, in prayer, before God, worshiping Him, praising Him, speaking His praise. I want you to note well the connection between changing, exchanging anxiety for peace and worshiping God. Worshiping God is one of those things that He has given us that will take us to that place of receiving and experiencing supernatural peace from Him. Do you worship? I mean every day. I mean as you walk through your life, do you worship? One of my favorite accounts of worship in the whole Bible and and. You has to, to look. We have to take the time and look at it. Turn to Genesis chapter 24. The first time the word worship is used in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 22. And it's used in conjunction with Abraham taking Isaac to Moriah to sacrifice him. No time to break down that whole story. But when they get to the place where they're about to go and build the altar and put Isaac on it so Abraham can sacrifice him as the Lord commanded him, the assistants of Abraham and Isaac said, what do we do now? And Abraham said, you guys wait here. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and then we will return. So you get that expression of faith from Abraham's heart that they were both going to come out of it. But what happens of course is the word the concept of worship there is used in conjunction with building an altar and making a sacrifice as it often is in the old testament and of course Abraham never got to that point because god stopped him just as he was about to you know do what he was going to do to Isaac and and so it never went all the way through anyway but then after that you get to this really amazing passage in genesis chapter 24 and what happens in Genesis chapter 24 is it tells us that Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house who ruled over all that he had. And some some commentators will make the point that perhaps this is Eliezer. Way back in the day before Isaac was born, Abraham had been promised a son. The son had not come yet. The, old, the, the the chief servant Abraham's house was a guy named Eliezer, and God and Abraham cried out to God and said, uh, Lord, I don't have a son. My, ser- my servant Eliezer is going to be the one who inherits all my stuff. And, and, and God speaks back to him and says, no, 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 he's not going to inherit all that. Um, you are going to have a son. And of course, eventually Isaac is born. But it is possible, it's years later, but it's possible that that's the servant that's being talked about here. A servant who was in line to perhaps be the inheritor of Abraham and uh, everything that he had, which was quite a bit. Abraham's getting old and he sends this guy on a mission, a long mission, a treacherous mission perhaps, an uncertain mission. He wants a wife for Isaac. And he says, go back to my country he was from Chaldea. Go back to my country. And his family had moved from Chaldea to Haran, sort of modern day Syria. In that day, a long and perilous journey. Today, that's a pretty perilous Not as long, but it seems, but it's still perilous. But listen go back there to my family and find a bride for. Isaac. And the guy is like, "Well, if I find a woman and she's not willing to come, then what? And Abraham says, if she says no, then you're released from this burden that I've asked you to do. But please, go back and find Isaac a wife. So, all of chapter 4 talks about everything that he gathered together and where he goes. And he goes all the way back, all the way back into the ancient homeland. And and he finds this woman named Rebekah. And If you look at verse 21, it says this, And the man, who's never named in this chapter, this is the servant of Abraham, Genesis 24, 21, The man, wondering at her, remained silent as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. So right there you see that this man was in the right frame of mind. This was all about was God going to bless this or not verse 22 So it was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing 10 shekels of gold and said Whose daughter are you tell me please is there room in your father's house for us to lodge which I've never taken camels out to get them watered but that would that would strike me as a pretty weird thing for a stranger to say and do right you know but she goes, she says, So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. It's Abraham's, Abraham's family. You know, God had, led, God had led this man across the desert straight to a daughter right from Abraham's family. More, that must have blown him away. It blows me away to read it. Moreover, she said to him, We have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge says something of the character of the young girl and and her her willingness to entertain strangers. Verse 26, look at this. This is the part that has always touched me over the years. Then the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear because we don't carry it all to the Lord in prayer. This fellow, when he realizes that God has led him right to the place where he needs to go, he is not, listen, he is not overwhelmed by the success of the journey. He is not, perhaps, overwhelmed by relief. He is not so overwhelmed by his circumstances that he forgets to stop and thank the one who brought it about. He forgets to stop and worship the one who brought it about. In the middle of all that, he bows down and he remembers God. And he worships. This sort of thing, what does he say? Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren, which sets Rebecca running and sets all these wonderful, beautiful things in motion. Do you worship God? Are you a worshiper of our Lord Jesus Christ? I don't just mean are you a believer. I don't just mean do you go to church. I don't just mean do you read your Bible and do you pray. Are you a worshiper of our God. We meet God. We commune with God in the place and in the act of worship towards Him. This man stopped because the situation as it presented itself demanded that he worship God. And that's what a worshiper of God is. Someone who walks through life, walks day by day, walks through experience after experience looking and beholding the hand of God at work in everything in his life. And when the time came, he just stopped. He stopped and he bowed his head and he worshipped. In Philippians chapter 4, when it says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. The idea of prayer there is what this man did. We're talking about how do we exchange our anxieties for the peace that God offers. This is one of them. Be like this guy. Stop to worship. When when you come to an assembly of Christians, worship with all of your heart. When you leave here, worship with all of your heart. When you gather after I say amen and we're done and you start talking with each other, make your conversations acts of worship to God. Stir each other up to the things of God. Point one another to God because God ought to be worshipped in the moment by moment, day by day experiencing of our lives. Yes or no? Yes or no? is, Is God to be compartmentalized into little one and two hour chunks at your church house when you're able to make it? No. The worship of God ought to be all the time. That's the idea of prayer here. Sometimes we turn prayer into simply asking God for things, and that's part of it. That's the supplication part. But prayer, first of all, what prayer is, is to exalt and praise the Lord and to worship the Lord. It's why you ought to be well-versed in the Psalms because they lift up so much praise to God. And other examples in Scripture of songs and just times where people stop and praise the Lord like the one that I just read to you. Become someone who truly is a worshiper of God. It is one of the steps on the path to exchanging your anxiety for supernatural peace. And then comes supplication. And the idea of the word supplication is petition, some of the other translations will use. This has to do with asking God to move in the things that you feel bring anxiety into your life. This is what a friend we have in Jesus. This is, oh, what peace we often forfeit, oh, what needless pain we bear, because we don't carry it to the Lord in prayer. This is that part of it. Why are you battling and struggling with things that you're anxious for? Why are you fighting out, lashing out, trying to fight and manipulate and change everything that you have no control over? Why are you trying to do it like that and try to get the world's peace when Jesus says, I give you peace not as the world gives? When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, God will do it. No. Go to the Lord and take these things to the Lord and ask supplication, petition. Pray, and in your prayers, worship. Make your requests, as it goes on to say, known to God. Supplicate. Ask for Him to move. Ask according to His will. Ask for Him to be glorified. When Jesus taught us to pray, that model prayer part of it was your will be done on earth as it is in heaven Jesus exemplified that himself when he prayed before his crucifixion. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Go to the Lord and pray and ask, Lord, please, this burden, it's too hard for me to bear. God doesn't say he's necessarily going to change this or that. He doesn't say he's necessarily going to do this or that, but he promises something better, which is a peace in your heart and in your mind, a peace in your soul that transcends whatever this and that is. Isn't that better? He might fix it. He might fix it immediately. He might fix it later. He might just want you to endure through it. But he promises now peace. And that's really what we want. That's really what the Christian knows that he or she needs. That's what Paul is saying here. Don't be anxious about anything in every single thing, by prayer, that you're crying out to God and worship and praise and supplication that's asking God about your difficulties and your problems. Bring it all to the Lord. Now, there's one more element there too, isn't there? What's that? Thanksgiving, right? I won't delve into it too much for time's sake, but I'll just say that in the New Testament, two things that Paul wrote. Well, Colossians 3:15, you can look it up for yourself later, he's, he talks about how in all things we are called to be thankful. In everything we're called to be thankful. But on the flip side of that, maybe you forget this, but in Romans chapter one, when Paul is writing this great indictment of the entire world, what is really the chief thing that he indicts them for? It says that in their hearts they did not glorify God, nor were thankful. Right? when he talks about the Lord and how they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and, 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 and all of those, all of those ways that man turned his back upon God, one of the chief and most serious indictments of all of mankind is that they were foolish, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful. A lack of thanksgiving is one of the great indictments against this entire world and its whole system of society. That the world forgets God and the world doesn't worship God and the world doesn't thank God and the world even creates idols to worship in place of God. That's Romans chapter 1. And so it goes on to say, and so God gave them over to a reprobate mind to defile even their bodies amongst one another with sexual immorality and homosexuality and and all these other things and all these other sins that are all the product ultimately of forgetting and denying God and replacing Him with idols. Paul says to the Christian, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, we can all find, even in the midst of anxiety, things to be thankful for. True or not, If nothing else, if you're in Christ, there is the biggest thing of all. And that is that God has revealed Himself to you. God has opened your heart to the truth of the Gospel. God, by His power, has drawn you to Himself God, by His power, has granted it to you to repent and to believe. God has made you His child. God has adopted you. God has made you an heir. All of the promises of the covenant are yours in God, in Christ Jesus. All ours. You know what one of the easiest ways to be thankful is? Is to just think about your eternal future with the Lord. When Paul wrote to Titus, he spoke of looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When he wrote to the Colossians, he said, Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. What happens when you set your affections entirely on the things of this world? Disappointment. Anxiety. What happens when you set your affections on things above? You're reminded that you're not a citizen of this world. You're a citizen of heaven and your redemption draws nigh. Jesus promised to return. Jesus will return one day. And when he returns, you're with him forever. Be thankful. That's not preacher talk. That's, that's real. That's coming. That's coming. Jesus actually came. Jesus actually died for our sins. He actually rose from the dead, actually ascended back to heaven, and is actually going to come back to this earth one day, set his foot on the Mount of Olives, and it will split in two, says the prophet, coming to that book on Thursday nights very soon. Be thankful. This whole world is going to be judged. Peter wrote that all of the elements will be burned and melted with fervent heat. The earth that you stand on will not last. But we will live with him forever and ever. Be thankful. Get a dose of reality, please. And be thankful. You can look around at other things in your life have a church to be part of you have god's word to read for comfort and to be close to him you have his daily abiding presence you have the comfort of the holy spirit maybe there are other things in your life that you know that he's provided for you your home your job your 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 ability your friends whatever it may be there are things in your life listen it's like the old hymn writer said, count your blessings, name them one by one. And, you know, that's not like, count your blessings, name them one by one. We sing that at Thanksgiving time every year. It's a beautiful hymn and a wonderful, it's a dead, dead, it's a super serious com- concept. It's, it's so incredibly deep and serious, the concept of in the middle of difficulty and strife and trial and anxiety, Stopping to be thankful for the blessings in your life. There's something that a Christian should practice. It's one of the things that's on the path to supernatural peace. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So listen, we've talked about the peace. That is the objective of it. We've talked about the path to it. Pray. Be a worshiper. Be a worshiper of God in the midst of a world that's forgotten Him. Be a worshiper. Be a worshiper. Pray. Supplicate. Take your requests to Him. Thanksgiving. Be thankful. Don't be like the rest of the world that's forgotten Him. Thank Him for everything. Everything He can think of. Thank you, God, for this. Thank you, God, for that. And in that kind of a spirit, take your requests to Him and then... As my old preacher friend said so many years ago, leave it there. Don't pick it up and take it away. Take it to God, drop it off, and leave it there. He says, you give me that, and I'll give you peace. Peace that passes all understanding and guards your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. That, there's so much more I can say about this, but That peace is yours as a gift from God. Believe Him. Do what He says. And He will sanctify body, mind, and spirit. He who calls you will do it. Jed and Fanny, come on back up here. Let's all stand up together and we're going to close with our final hymn.